in early 2014, I was introduced to this man's work. His ideas on the importance of challenge, grit, resilience, and living the team life completely changed my thinking. Today I'm excited to introduce you to David Rutherford, ex-Navy SEAL, poet warrior, author, and speaker. That's this week on the Badass Agile Podcast. Greetings, team. Welcome to the Badass Agile Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Williams. All right, my friends, you're in for a treat this week. No joke. Listen, when I host people on this show, I have two recorders going. For this man, no joke, I've got three. It's the man himself, David Rutherford, ex-Navy SEAL, poet, warrior, podcaster, broadcaster. Man, it's an honor to have you on the show today. How you doing, David? Chris, thank you so much for uh, letting me be here with you this morning, man. Uh, uh, I'm above dirt, and uh, nobody is uh, has taken a shot at me today where I live, so uh, it's a good day. I'm glad to hear that. And it's some crazy times we're living in, man. How are you and the family holding up through all this? Uh, that's, that's, I appreciate that, man. A lot of people don't, don't start out with that type of question, but uh, I, I really appreciate it. Uh, we're good. You know, I, we have four, not small kids, but uh, ages from 12 to, to seven. And it's been a adjustment for them, but they're, they're troopers and they're doing well. And then my beautiful fiance, she is the, glue that holds us all together that makes this uh, wonderful machine of our household work and and get it done so everybody's okay uh, i think in the grander you know concept of of where we could be in life and as opposed to a lot of other people around the world right now we're we're doing awesome thank you man how I'm about gl- you and yours Chris? hey everyone's great here man so uh thank you for asking first of all um And I, before we begin, so first of all, you started out, I want to say you had an English degree, right? No, I I was getting an art major with a minor in poetry. Got it. Okay. So you've got a liberal arts degree. You were, you were shooting for division one football, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct. Yeah. I, um, my, you know, I started playing flag tag, I think at, uh, four years old, Whoa. played a few years of that. And then right into, uh, uh, you know, um, Pete Pop Warner. It's called Boca Jets, where I was from, and mm-hmm. and you know, played all the way up through high school. Did a, a postgraduate year at a prep school up in Connecticut, and and ended up uh, uh, not getting any real D one offers. But you know, thankfully, I I was pretty decent at lacrosse, and I got a D one offer from Penn State, and I figured, hell, man. I'll go there. Joe Paterno loves walk-ons. He's known for it. And I'll walk on and I'll win the Heisman Trophy at Penn State. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so when you didn't get on the path to do that, you then became uh, a United States Navy SEAL, although maybe not, maybe not that quickly. And, <laughs> yeah, there and, was a bit, of a, a bit of a time in between yeah, that yeah. decision where it got a little, a little dark for me. For sure. 
And then you went on to, uh, you've done combat medic. I think you've done a BUDS instructor. And Not that- BUDS. I, I taught a, a course called SQT, SEAL Qualification Training. So BUDS is a basic indoc into the SEAL program. And then once you finish BUDS, you do, when I taught, it was a 31-week course. Now I think it's a 42-week course. So. Got it. Okay. And then after you retired, you did some defense contracting. So you went back overseas. You have since been a podcaster. You're the author of two great books. And Three. Th- oh, excuse actually, me. F- actually, four. All right. We're going to have to run through all the titles <laughs> then because clearly I missed something. Sorry for the miss there. but No, it's all right. It's all right. I took I took one down. And I'm in the process of turning that into a Doc Frog book. So essentially three kids book, one adult book, and I've got one adult book in the works right now. Okay, awesome. So for those of you who listen to this show and have listened for the past you know, three years, those of you who know my work, those of you who are in the Forge program, it all started with this man. If you open up my Kindle, the very first book, because I resisted Kindle forever, very first book on my list is a picture of a clean-shaven, Young pup named David Rutherford with his book, Navy Seal Self-Confidence. Ladies, you owe yourself the pleasure of having a look at this young man with no beard. Uh, And everyone needs to read this book. Now, thanks, Chris. This book was the thin edge of the wedge that changed my life in a positive direction to where I am today. So for for me, this is a special, special episode. So Dave, you're going to get off this show and you're going to be looking at your family and say, you know what? He's right. There should be a street named after Dave Rutherford. <laughs> and then your kids are going to be, your kids are going to be like, you've been talking to your fans again, haven't you? <laughs> so before we begin, Dave, I always like to recalibrate with my tribe and and take a minute to remember why we listen to this show and why I do this show. So for those of you out there, you know the words, you can sing along. To create an elite tribe of leaders who truly serve their clients and communities by doing what matters and what works, relentlessly chasing value and excellence like a badass. There's so many resources out there about what you need to do to be agile, but we focus on who you need to become in order to lead teams. So let's hammer down those fundamentals to create a truly unique and powerful force in this industry. And guys, if this show helps you, do me a favor. Just tell your friends. All right. Here he is, David Rutherford. I've got two questions to explore with you today. The first one is what have you learned at this point in your career from your experience with Navy SEALs, from your experience in the real world doing the job every day that we can take on in the business world, I'm fascinated with the question of how do we get regular civilian teams to behave in some of the ways that you've learned and you've seen. And then the second question was inspired by you yourself. When, when we spoke, you mentioned, hey, it's been you know now a decade and change since we even started hearing from ex-Navy SEALs. Back then, it was kind of a new thing. We didn't meet too many people who have been, how long have you been out of the forces now, been retired? Uh, well, I did eight years in the teams, got out of the teams in 03, then Blackwater 04 to 06, and then the agency 08 to 2011. My last deployment was the fall of 2011. So a little bit of time now. Right. So 10 years hence, you're a retired man. I'm interested in knowing what's your purpose now? What's the second stage for you? Because being a warrior is, to a point, 
a younger man's game, right? Latest you can go in is what, 27, something like that? Yeah, unless you get a waiver and, you know, I think the max you can waiver out at, I think now is like 31 maybe. Right, so still for, for the fairly young guys, but as we progress through life, our meaning changes, our purpose changes. So that's the second question I've got for you. If you're cool, if you're down with those two. Absolutely, absolutely. So let's hit that first one. Tell me about Frog Logic, first of all. Uh, Frog Logic was really kind of this concept that uh, resulted as, after an experience I had in my second deployment to Afghanistan. And this, uh, I was working with Blackwater at the time. I uh, I had come on with them as a kind of an international training and curriculum development specials. And I had spent the first almost year working in a country called Azerbaijan. And we were helping uh, redesign what, what's called a FID mission. And FID missions are foreign internal defense. And typically special operations groups, in order to keep up relations with allies, they'll send special operations groups to these various countries and they'll work with their counterparts. So we were there working with the Azeri SEALs, if you will. And um, then after that, after that program went over to Afghanistan for my second trip there and worked with the Afghan uh, counter drug police. Uh, As everybody knows, Afghanistan is the world's, one of the world's top producers for uh, raw opium and went over there. And the idea was uh, we had deployed uh, um, DEA fast teams over there to really try and kind of assess and disrupt a little bit of that supply in order to gain some critical real world intel on, because all the, the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, now ISIS, everything over there, government is all tied to the opium production. Everybody, everything is, it's the, it's country's largest GDP. And I think when I was there, it was about 86% of the GDP came from opium. Can you imagine? No. And the wow. numbers are staggering, actually. Mm. And, and, and I mean, this was back in 2000, fall of 2005. And the Taliban had really, when they got into power, they had stopped or at least locked down the, dis- the control of opium. And they were sitting on it. And so they cornered the market in the world. And then they opened the floodgates and started reaping the rewards and and we're talking billions of dollars worth of revenue you know i mean it's it was it's crazy and in fact at one one point we i was we had, were doing this thing and they were pushing i think it was like 1600 tons of raw opium over the uzbek border every week wow yeah every week and and so it, you know it was a big deal um but, you know, we were on a, a mission. I was supporting, kind of mentoring the, the group that we had been teaching and kind of it was a dry hole, a lot, of, a lot of bad intel over there at that level. And in that experience, we had hit this compound. And after my guys were done, I kind of sat there and and was looking around and it was, a, you know, every time you hit a compound overseas, regardless of where it is, especially in Afghanistan, and that's the only place I've really been under combat environments. And- um, you know, you hit a compound and the compound's filled with children. There's tons of kids, mm. tons of females, you know, a few adult males and then animals. And then there, and so we'd hit. And after I was standing there and I'm just sitting there watching these kids and it was like a normal, regular day for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and that was the first time that I ever really had a substantial amount of, of 
of empathy hit my my heart instead of apathy because my first appointment over there was not even a year after 9-11. And so I had really conjured a, a, a true hatred for all things Afghanistan. And in those few years after, I, I had definitely matured as a result of understanding that that hatred is incredibly destructive for a human being to have hate in their heart. I mean, it just devastates, devastates you psychologically. And in this period, I just saw these kids and it hit me that, uh, you know, I wanted to do something to help the children of, of warfare and started kind of researching because of my medical background. I really imagined that I would, you know, maybe work with doctors without borders. Maybe I'd work for USAID or something, some way that could get me in these countries to where I could be of some kind of assistance. I didn't know what it was or how it was, but you know, I, I could do something. Well, when I came back from that deployment, I had really grown pretty weary or leery, I should say, of non certain nonprofits uh, and the way they conduct themselves overseas. They're, they're, you know, a lot of times the idealism within the nonprofit far exceeds their ability to understand the level of safety concerns that are there. And in fact, a Navy SEAL died uh, later on at DevGrew, a guy named Nick Check had died on a rescue mission. And it's actually a rescue mission that uh, enabled Ed Byers to receive the Medal of Honor. I mean, he didn't want it because his best friend died on it. But so, the, you know, it's it's they don't always have a great safety in mind, but they do beautiful things around the world. But so I didn't think culturally I would have been able to clash. So when I came home, I just kept researching. Well, I just kind of, you know, as you're doing research on child development, child, you know, uh, health. You know, I came across an article that um, really talked about childhood obesity in in the states, and I and I saw that one county in Texas, in particular, that sixty five plus I think percent of the the population of kids in their teens were morbidly obese in this county, and and that hit me, yeah, and it made me realize that uh, we're we're at war here with our for our children. And, and it's not the war that, you know, comes frontal assault on you with guys wearing quad nods and, and M4s and stuff, but it's a, a, a war of attrition against the future of our children. And what really clinched it was I had found an article by a couple of guys in, in over up at Harvard who were talking about doing research on something they called internet withdrawal syndrome. And it was the desocialization of child mind based on being hyper-connected to a device or, or to the internet or to a computer and gaming. And they, they pr had some pretty stark predictions for it. And that was the catalyst for frog logic. That was the moment where I said, man, I, I want to, I need to do something to be able to help these kids. And as I was doing all this research, you know, it's like, what do I, what do I take from my life and how do I transfer it to kids? And one of the things that really stood out as I evaluated uh, my psychological evolution from athletics into the teams through art was, um, you know, that kids needed self-confidence in particular from the ages of eight to 15. And that was the, really the spark for me, which ignited frog logic, which I've been doing ever since.
And your logo is a picture of a frog on the human brain, which has got a couple of things merged together. First of all, the, the colloquial term for a Navy SEAL is the frogman, right? That's a term yeah. that you did use, maybe still use. And then there's the blended into that is the notion of the reptilian brain or that two million year old organ that's controlling our lives without us knowing it potentially. So I love what you're doing with the kids, first of all, um, because I think a big solution to some of the problems that we're having is re-indoctrinating kids away from what's on the devices and the gaming consoles and to real life get outside and play, you know, communicate like humans, put the phone down, be present, be there. And I don't think society realizes, even the grownups that I teach and I coach, they're glued to their phones and they don't realize that your attention is for sale. So people are working very hard to addict you to those devices because there's money in that. If I've got your attention, if I've got your eyeballs, I can sell you something. Always. And that's, I mean, if you listen to guys like Gary Vayner, Vaynerchuk, they're very aware of it and they're capitalizing on it. Not, not to criticize the guy because he's brilliant, but, but, but it is a war that we have to fight back against. So what are some of the lessons? When I first read and encountered Navy SEAL self-confidence, I remember some of those lessons as like have never heard it before. First thing, the term you use is suck it up, buttercup. So it's like lean into the <laughs> crappy stuff. I took away swim buddies. Nobody, you know, we talk about teams in business all the time. Nobody talks swim buddy. Nobody talks person to person accountability, support, asking for help. And there's a ton of other wisdom that just, it's not in regular learning. It's not in personal or team development anywhere. Totally unique. So what are some of the things that you learned or what are some of your favorite stories from your team days that are translatable now when you're coaching sports teams, when you're coaching enterprise? What are some of the big ones that you really feel the world needs to hear right now? Um, I appreciate the question and and also, you know, the the, the concept of, of Peer accountability. I mean, that's really at its core uh, how we are able to to thrive under extreme environments, right? And that's what Frog Logic essentially has become. It, it's it's a motivational training and performance coaching uh, company. And and over the years, it's evolved out of those first initial concepts of uh, you know the eight missions to help people forge their self confidence. Well, now it's really a, a more co complete program. And the four main things that Frog Log I focus on within Frog Logic is uh, first teach people how to embrace their fears. Then it's teach them how to forge. Once their fears are, they've got a grasp of that. Now they can really begin to work on that self-confidence. And I teach people to forge their self-confidence. And then once they have those two things down, now they can really generate and commit themselves to a team or a total team oriented life, right? Getting rid of the selfishness and becoming selfless. Mm -hmm. And then the final thing is once you have all those three down, you're in a great place to really start searching for what your purpose is. So right. it's fear, confidence, team orientation, and purpose. And those are the four main concepts within Frog Logic. And, and within the last two or three years, it's it's I've expanded into a, a, the next level, which is is culture and really understanding uh, the, the complexities of culture and how to formulate great culture from within. Mm -hmm. Now, for those of you listening, you may be saying, you know, you started off the episode talking about opium trade in Afghanistan. You may be wondering what this has to do with agile. But one thing I'm noticing about you is that you're agile without even knowing it. 
<laughs> in the sense that you released, you know, version one of Frog Logic, and then over time you refined it and simplified it, probably stripped away the things that were not essential, and shine a light on the things that are really connecting with people. <laughs> which which part of your Frog Logic system do you find is really resonating with regular folks? Like, what do people really get magnetized to? Wow, that's a great question. I think the two biggest ones within it are uh, the team life. I mean, people just really want to understand how to create great teams nowadays. I mean, it's all based on everybody knows individually, it's very difficult to uh, achieve any metric of success that, you know, uh, uh, makes us available for that grander sense of self-actualization. And so the team life concept is really, you know, I'd probably do 40, 50 events, speaking events a year. And out of those, I, I'd say I give the team, my team life seminar 60, 65%. And then the other one is, is fear. And right now fear is the number one uh, place people are, are searching and finding me and, and really are, are resonating with these ideas about fear. So Okay. Well, let's come back to teams in a minute then, and let's talk about fear, because as you say, it's everywhere. But even when you go to coach, when I go to coach corporate teams or individuals who are you know, building tribes and so on, when you look at the thing that stops people from doing the disciplined work, whether it's eating healthy, whether it's doing the PT, the physical training, whether it's committing to the mission, whether it's committing to a partner or to a team, the thing that always holds people back has something to do with fear. The excuse making is based on fear, that kind of stuff. So tell me a little bit more about what you've learned about fear and how to conquer it. Well, I don't, fear is, I mean, it's impossible to conquer fear. Absolutely. There's, there's, you know, when I first got into it, cause one of the, it was crazy. One of the first big speaking events I did was uh, with a, a buddy of mine who I actually blessed, you know, who changed the course of my life just kind of randomly. Um, this guy, Kyle, um, and, and hired me to come. He worked for a, a um, a company called Pioneer Investments and they're a marketing, uh, uh, what do you call it? Jeez, I'm drawing a blank right now, but they're, they're a company that uh, sells mutual funds. And he brought me in and I, you know, went to an event and afterwards this guy is a top client and it was a client event of his. He looks at me and goes, David, you know, weren't you afraid? Weren't you afraid of what you were doing? Wasn't it, wasn't it scary? And, and that was a real question that I think I've got a lot. Weren't, were you afraid? Was it scary? And, and I tell you what, you you drive around a countryside with 25 million landmines in a dune buggy. Um, yeah, that's scary stuff. Or you mm -hmm. get shot at, that's scary stuff. Or you're hitting a target with, you know, how many unknown people on there who have guns who want would kill you like it was nothing. That's scary. Mm -hmm. And so fear is, I started this research on fear. And after about four or five years, I kind of felt like I was in the position to really be able to start teaching it. And the greatest challenge that people have is this illusion that we can defeat fear, that there is some place in the foreseeable future where it doesn't play a major role in our life. And that's just simply not the case. There's no, I mean, there, I've, you know, found a couple, a couple random case studies. I found a woman from like the fifties who had uh, her amygdalas weren't 
really shaped her form in her limbic system. And, you know, you could put a full grown male cat in front of her and she'd be like, look at the pretty kitty, you know, and, <laughs> and, and nothing. And, you know, and then I think recently a place where I think the world was exposed to it is that beautiful movie called Solo about Alex Honnold's, you know, world, you know, I mean, feat of climbing El Capitan with no ropes. Mm -hmm. And, and there's a part where he goes and gets a, a CAT scan and they see that his amygdalas are a little underdeveloped or they don't engage as much because, and then what they as assume or the correlation they make is to the lack of love he received from his parents and especially from his father as wow. a kid, because he had, his dad had Asperger's. So he didn't know how to uh, overtly express a love. So those, that component of, of his, emotional structure was underdeveloped. Mm -hmm. And the reality is we are hardwired for fear. It's, it's fundamentally the most substantial component of our uh, neuropathways, our neurology, you know, how our brain functions. There's no, nothing more important than that other than absolutely the, the concept of love, but that's still a great mystery. Right. And so when you realize that we're wired for it, that it affects us physiologically, it changes our, our pulse rate, it, you, know, our, you know, you start to feel the spidey senses ting, your intuition, you know, all these things um, really, uh, really change the way we function and work. And so when you realize that we're wired for fear, the, the next step you get to, obviously, when you dig in is that we've been taught fear mm -hmm. our whole lives. Mm -hmm. We're perpetually teaching fear. And we're inundated for, with fear. I mean, it's everywhere around us. And so those two things combined make it an impossibility to be able to defeat or overcome or anything. But what you can do is you, uh, through a concept called stress inoculation, you can learn to utilize fear uh, and change your perception of fear to where it can become inspirational and to where you get to a point where you allow yourself to go through uh, some of the most difficult military training on the planet, and you're willing to run into gunfire next to your buddies. So mm -hmm. that's kind of the concept. So what's the process for managing that fear rather than conquering it? Great point. But what what are you trained to do or what do you do back in the teams? And now in your current role, what are your fears now? And how do you face them on a daily basis? What's your, if you have a process, what would it be? Oh, that's a great question. Absolutely. All right. So the, the, I mean, I have tons of fear. I mean, I'm, I mean, first and foremost, my four daughters, I mean, the fear that's uh, involved in, in every aspect of, of raising a child yeah. I mean, from, I mean, I mean, you just, you can write down, you know, 10 three ring binders of fear right, when you're dealing with your child, right? Are one they, by uh, one, the boyfriends yeah. come home. <laughs> I, it, I'm not even really afraid of that. I, no, I, no. I worked through that. The first thing when I had my first daughter uh, back in the day, that was obviously the most, the easily, the, the easiest concept to um, allow to derail your, the positivity of, of, of parenting, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's much more than that. It's it's uh, their intellectualism, their worldview, their uh, uh, their morals, their value systems, uh, their athleticism, their ability to compete, their ability to adapt, uh, their ability to remain a agile, if you will. And and so uh, you know, what do you have to do? You have to. I always start out in mission one is you have to search for the truth of your fear. Mm -hmm. Because there's a truth in all of our fear. 
and where it originated, how it evolved, and then what you did to uh, hold on to it, to, to allow it to perpetuate its manifestations in your your consciousness every day. Mm-hmm. And so, if you're not if you're not willing to do the work to to dig into that, then those fears are always going to you know, play a role in your decision process and, and your ability to adapt or adjust to these uh, evolving uh, purpose statements in your life. And so I really try and think, you know, just if people take two seconds and just try and understand where their fear comes from at a minimum, it's, it, that's, that's the start. How do you help people who don't know that their fear is dominating their decisions and their actions? That's a great question right there. That's the ultimate question, right? Because what do we do? We, you know, uh, we, we learn how to lie right from the get-go. And, and a lot of people believe that lying is just com- completely innate, that it's just built into our system of preservation. Uh, and if you go overseas in certain cultures, lying is, is, is every bit as part of the, their cultural reality as, as uh, you know, um, uh, um, accents or or uh, cultural garb or traditions That's or rituals. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Right? Yeah, it's a it's a massive component in many cultures around the world. Uh, and when you begin to understand the power that we have for, I mean, the, the great psychological technical term would be our, our rationalization, our ability to rationalize decision um, based on those, uh, you know, those deep rooted fears that we have of, of rejection of, 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 um, the hierarchies that they might, might result as a, a result of opening our mouths. Um, so I think it's, it's critical to really begin to understand that we all lie that every human being lies. We lie every day. Um, uh, mo- a lot, hopefully most people don't, like, uh, you know, in those grand Machiavellian lies where we're out to destroy others for our own benefit, although that happens substantially around the mm-hmm. world every mm-hmm. day. But yep. but where we lie most is to ourselves. And if you can get somebody to recognize those lies, and the way I do that is I test people, right? We have to be tested. We have to understand the truth of our limitations and our abilities before we can really begin to address uh, where uh, those uh, discrepancies come from or mm-hmm. where those, you know, the, the, the positive aspects of our abilities come from. And it's really typically rooted in, in our fears. And so how do you, if I may ask, how do you test for that if you can give a general case? Absolutely. So with you, what I do is, uh, um, do you swim at all, Chris? I don't. All right. Do you run at all or, sure. or yeah. jog? Mm-hmm. So you jog. How 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 fast could you run two miles? Uh, I think I timed myself once two miles. I can, let's imagine thirteen minutes or something. Okay, thirteen minutes. You think you can do thirteen minutes? All right. So what we would do is we'd set that time and we'd go out and we'd run the two miles. Mm-hmm. And then when you and we'd time it. And when you came back, that's your reality. Mm-hmm. And so what we do is we evaluate that the reality from your perceived reality. Right? Okay. If let's say you come in at 22 minutes mm-hmm. and if that variation is substantial, then that it correlates to the, the magnitude of variable that you might in, in, insist upon as, as your own reality. Right. And, and that's kind of how I do it. And, and, you know, if a person says, uh, I'm a, I'm an expert at coaching. Okay. 
let me see a coach. Right. And we we'll see how good they are. We'll see you know what they're what you know what how they approach the individual. Right. Are they coaching based on their your your own life experience and forcing that upon on the other person, or are you bringing your information to the individual and then you evaluate that individual and you look, and you really dig into what their motivational triggers are, and then you apply your your knowledge based on their triggers, their drivers. Right. Okay. So for, uh, again, a civilian or a business team, someone may be looking for a promotion and you say, great, what actions are you taking towards getting that promotion, towards earning that promotion? And, you know, they'll, they'll document, well, I, I started doing this, but then I got distracted with that. And then a new project came <laughs> up and I said, yes, and blah, blah, blah. And you're saying, well, hold on a second though. You said the promotion was the most important thing in your life right now, but you're not taking the action that corresponds to nailing that promotion. And it's at that point when you compare what they claim to be important against what they actually do, there's your metric. So in, in Agile, we like to make work visible. Post your stats, state your goal, and then state your outcomes. And then, quote unquote, the lie is around the corner. If, the, if there's a gap there, the lie ain't far behind. Does that make sense? 100%. And, and, and really what you... You know what what happens, and the reason why so many organizations, you know, and I work with companies. I help them evaluate training. I help them uh, with management coaching. I help them with recruiting. You know, I I I, I help all the, a lot of different companies in a lot of different ways. And and the number one way is, you know, is is as inspiring motivation within your personnel to strive to to you know, achieve at, at higher productivity rates. And as everybody is, especially right now, because people are have four or five jobs at one time right now. Oh, yeah. You know, economy we're in. And so what you have to, you have to make sure, the problem is, is there's so much ambiguity with roles and responsibilities that, and people are so uh, ready to, to give autonomy away as if it's this, this uh, predetermined uh, concept within organizations, mm -hmm. simply most likely because if you flip it around, you put the mirror on yourself, you're just too lazy to establish clear roles and responsibilities for people. Right. You know, in the teams and, and or working for the agency, you know what your job is every day. You know what the expectation is going to be. And, and, it's, and it's honed in on every day. There's never a day that you go into work where, you're, where it's not, a, a distinct portion of the expectation for your peers and your superiors. And so that makes, uh, if you stay in that lane and you continue and you do your job the best of your ability, because you're under that microscope, microscope of scrutiny, uh, you know, you, you, you succeed. And we've proven that over the past 70 plus years on the battlefields around the world. Mm -hmm. Now you raise an interesting point, jumping back to teams and thank you for that, that exploration into fear, because that's fascinating, but let's talk about teams for a second in your world, we can disqualify some. So if you're not familiar with that buds process, the screening <laughs> process, if you will, for a Navy SEAL, the short story of it is it's intentionally frustratingly difficult to simulate you know high stress combat situations so that you either quit because you just realize this isn't worth it to me which is the good news if you quit because it's not worth it to you you're the wrong person to defend your country at the highest level the next thing that can happen is that 
you get ground down to the point where Chris, you- Chris, can I hop in right there? I just, I, I want to be, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a kind of a stickler, stickler Absolutely. on, on the description. I'm sorry. Yep. Worth, personal worth, that's relative, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. So, and, and every day we figure out in some capacity, whether it's consciously or subconsciously, how to generate worth within ourselves. And that's what ultimately gets us out of bed at whatever, at whatever level. Mm-hmm. It's not about worth with us. It's about capability. Okay. And, and what we do is we, like you said, we apply, and I call it the positive application of pain. Yep. We apply so much pain on the individual physically, mentally, and emotionally mm-hmm. that the individual is forced to be honest with themselves and say, I can't live this life mm-hmm. for an extended period of time. Right. And it's I, I don't believe it's in me that I can endure this level of stress, this level of fear for a, a, a long period of time. And that's why our, our dropout rate or our quit rate is, is about 86, 87%. Right. So thanks for that clarification. I appreciate it very much. Uh, my, the point I was coming to is that you can't do that test in the corporate world. We can't screen candidates for human resources job using the same techniques. So the challenge <laughs> You is, could, but you'd, you'd go to jail. You could, but you'd go to jail. That's right. That's right. How do we find out what people are made of and to what extent they are, what are they willing to go through to become their personal best for their own sake or for the sake of a customer, a team of whatever? What are some things that can be done to at least simulate the outcomes, if not the actual process, which as you said is, you know, almost inhumane? Well, I, I mean, that's a, you know, and that's the magic question. I mean, I get this all the time, Chris, how do I turn my team into the Navy SEALs mm-hmm. of this or the mm-hmm. Navy SEALs? And I joke with them. I say, all right, go get a, a rubber inflatable boat, put it in the middle of your coffee break lounge, fill it with ice water. And anytime mm-hmm. somebody screws up, go have them hit the, you know, hit the, the ice water boat and right. see what happens. And they're like, well, I don't think HR is going to like that. And that's I go, right. exactly. You know, we've, we've allowed HR to run roughshod on us. And mm-hmm. and now even more so with this cancel culture, I mean, you know, accountability is just, is, you know, just, I mean, where it was before, I thought it was, you know, just kind of seeping mm-hmm. through the cracks. Now it's just flowing through the, the grates of, you know, uh, of, of all of our organizations. And, and, and so if you can't do those things, which I don't recommend, I mean, when I first started this back in 2006, I tried to really implement as close to that as possible, the, the, the militaristic mindset or the special operations mindset into an organization has just failed miserably because mm-hmm. it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And so through agility and, and my understanding to you know, adapt to what does and doesn't work, I came to realize that, man, you still have to apply the pain. You still have to put your people in duress. Mm-hmm. And, and the easiest way, the easiest way, which legitimately does, should not take any special considerations from your senior leadership or HR, is just to run rehearsals, mm-hmm. conduct rehearsals, force an individual to perform their job under evaluation and scrutiny and watch what they do. And if they can't do that, 
then, you know, that's right there. If you get somebody that says, I, I don't feel comfortable with the pressure you're putting, I don't, I'm not, I feel unsafe with that, mm -hmm. com then, then thank you very much. I appreciate your time, but uh, we don't want you. Because if a people, if a person isn't willing to feel the pressures of uh, the immediate uh, goals or tasks at hand and be, and, and be available to be evaluated by those things, then, mm -hmm. then that person is, is living a lie. Is there anything that you do when you're when you're hired to coach teams and statistically you're going to have some of those don't want to people in the crowd? Is there anything that can be done to teach them, to enlighten them, to show them that hey, you're living a certain way, but it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a lie. You have to get comfortable with challenge. You know, we call it you know getting wet and sandy. What's your wet and sandy? And let's see if I can bring you there safely. Again, not. You know, not with a with a rubber inflatable boat and and all that stuff and a, a three hundred pound log, but how can I get you to see that? Because I mean, I read your book and it was an eye opener in the sense that oh, we're expected to to enjoy and laugh and have fun at some of the things that we normally say this sucks, I hate this, you know, the whining and all that stuff that gets started. Is there something that you can do to help that person turn? Uh, you know, I, it's a difficult question. I mean, if I speak in generalities, uh, you know, there's, there's, I, I believe there's 30% of uh, any group that's going to be comfortable with operating at the lowest possible performance threshold there is. And a performance threshold is the max ability a human being can res can conjure up in a particular operational environment, right? Mm -hmm. You know, can, what is the max level you can produce? And, you know, I, I, there's the overwhelming majority of the world operates from about 20 to 25, 30% max performance threshold because they've just never gone out and really exposed themselves to test what their true limits are. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that 30%, you know, you have, there's an expectation of performance. They're just never going to go over. So, you know, I, I, if, if they're in a job that, you know, you, you require a, a significant <laughs> result from them, then you're, I, I don't, I think you need to reevaluate your perception of performance because mm -hmm. they just can't do it. Right. Where there's a, another group that can operates from that 30% to 50%, which are your elite performers in the world. You know, people that have a, 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 a correlative tendency of performance, they understand the importance of performance, they can articulate, and then they can also have that self-evaluation be present uh, in in how they communicate, right? You can mm -hmm. hear it in the, the words they choose to use. Right. Now, and then there's your top group that, you know, they're just going to do it anyways. You've got it. Now, for you, when you went through buds, I know you had to, you had a couple of physical injuries, and I mean you struggled, and you write about that struggle. What is it about you that made you say, well, "I'm not quitting. I'm going to keep doing this until they either kick me out or I pass the damn thing." My my purpose for for not quitting, um, and every every person has their own unique purpose, right? And this was something that when I was on the Team Never Quit podcast with Marcus Luttrell, you know, mm -hmm. the basis of the podcast was. We'd interview people and they'd give us their greatest never quit story. Mm -hmm. And within the uh, the 125 or 24 shows I did there, uh, really interviewed some pretty pretty remarkable human beings. And and what I discovered are there's some root causes behind that never quit mentality. Well, mine was 
I was coming off four years of, of pretty substantial uh, bout of depression, mm-hmm. um, not, not achieving that mark of playing division one football. And, and because I couldn't do it or didn't realize or wasn't able to, or, you know, really I wasn't willing to, uh, feel the failure, if you will. Uh, and that fear of failure was what distracted me. Ultimately, uh, I quit on that dream and, and that sent me into this four year spiral. And when I figured I had, I call it my first real moment, a God moment in my life. And, and in that moment, God, you know, I had that inspiration that I needed to go test myself at the highest possible level and the highest possible team there was. And that's SEAL team. So when I got rolled the first time out of class 205 uh, for ITB problems, and then I got rolled into 206. And then I, you know, first week of first phase, I got stress fractures. I got, a, you know, luckily by the grace of God, I had another miracle in my life. Um, Chief Warrant Officer Rewards, man, a plank owner of, <laughs> of, of Dev Group, saved my career. And he, because of my attitude, right? Because I was a motivator, I was positive. I, I, I cared about my classmates, and mm-hmm. he had seen that, so he he granted me the my, the base training officer said I shouldn't they shouldn't drop me. But and then the performance failure two zero eight for pool comp. Each one of those moments when I was at my lowest, I said, if I don't make it through this, there's no doubt I'm going to go back to that place of of mm. of depression. In which many cases during that, I I had suicidal inclinations, right? And I knew that the 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 ulterior, you know, the ultimatum for me was if I don't make this, if I quit intentionally. I mean, granted, I could, you know, medically be dropped because my body just couldn't do it for some reason or other. But but if I mentally quit because it was just too damn hard, then I knew I'd be dead. Right, man. Thanks for sharing that story. That's yeah. a very personal story, and I appreciate it so much. Much respect. Now, I have a question jumping back to when we were talking about switching those people who are in that 30%, you know, very, very low standards for performance. Let me ask you this question, and I don't know if this will stump you or not, but it's a tough one. If you found out or realized that one of your daughters was in that category, they're just not showing up full out. They're making excuses. In effect, they're lying to themselves about what they're capable of. Just imagine, I'm sure that wouldn't happen in your, in your family because you're raising them, but imagine you found that out. What would you do or say to try to influence them to change? That's, a, that's probably one of the greatest questions that anybody's ever asked me. Thank you for that, Chris. My because, pleasure. Thank you for because the compliment. What it, what it does is it cuts through the bullshit, right? Mm-hmm. It gets right to the heart of my ability as a coach the heart of my ability as a, as a father, as a parent, which is the greatest fear I have. Mm-hmm. However, I do understand that, you know, genetics play a role, but so does the nurture or the nature of uh, a nurture nature uh, conundrum mm-hmm. that we face. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm sure, you know, one of my daughters is going to be great at sports and the other might be really good at art or, and the other one might be great at uh, math or English or whatever. And so the individual expectation becomes tempered because, especially in their developmental years. Now, when they're in their late 20, what, what the brain starts really ceases to continue to, it's, it's, it's uh, the development of your uh, cognitive functionality really ends right about 24 to 28. And that's where your brain is pretty much set on its development after that. So, you know, if I go to these, these girls and hopefully I'm still alive and <laughs> when they're, uh, when they're in their, you know, late twenties and early thirties 
and I can evaluate them and see a conscientious decision to undershoot their their potentiality, that's when I'll go in. But right. if there's a, a a very real present um, inability that is uh, correlative to their cognitive or behavioral abilities or you know, because there's so many factors involved. I mean, humans are so complicated uh, that, uh, you know, you have to get to the place of acceptance. And certain people are just not prepared to be the leaders we want them to be. Mm -hmm. And so you have to mitigate your expectations of a human being based on the reality of their capabilities. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Very well said. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. So listen, I, I said there was a second topic I wanted to hit, and, and we don't have to spend as much time on it, obviously, but it's now that you are, you know, 10 years almost out of the um, out of the service, out of the forces, uh, your mission has to change. You know, there's you know you're no longer picking up a sword on a daily basis when the country calls. So what's your new mission what what's now really important and emotionally engaging and compelling to david rutherford right now my my mission in life is pretty simple and uh through my faith uh i've been able to refine it uh down to a pretty specific thing and and my mission is is to um through my message uh, of teaching people that in the most extreme environments imaginable lie our greatest lessons mm-hmm of who we are as human beings and ultimately uh, finding our true purpose, being able to answer those questions of who am I and why am I here? So my mission in life is to reach that one person today, right? Today, as I wake up, my mission is to inspire one human being uh, to be able to move forward in a way that improves their life in the midst of, of the hardships, the pain, the suffering that is life. And, and I've chosen kind of how to do that through the profession that I've, I've undertaken. Yeah. And you know, what really shows up about you is if you engage with David Rutherford on Facebook or Twitter, you'll notice a couple of things. First of all, there's the notion of the poet warrior, which hmm. I know you've changed from warrior poet, but there's that side of you that is really creative and really expressive. And it's a huge part of who you are and how you inspire. And there's also, I mean, there's a sense of the man on fire. Like when you get going, it's it's fun and inspiring and engaging to watch, <laughs> but there's there's also that sense of a man discussing really quite publicly, the daily wrestle with the demons and the negativity and those things that are showing up for all of us. So that's really unique because a lot of ex-soldiers get on get on the air and they just talk about, you know, the war stories and the toughness and the stoicism. But I really feel like you're putting it out there in a different way that's more relatable for people. That's a conscious choice. You have to choose to expose yourself like that every day. And, and I'm curious why that's important to you. I appreciate it. again, Chris, you're on fire, man, with these questions. Oh, I love you, brother. it, brother. I um, told you, I warned you, man. Yeah, They no, should name a street uh, after Dave no, Rutherford. No, no, I don't want that. Uh, I know you don't. I'm just playing with you. Uh, um, man, what a, what a powerful question. Um, man, uh, I, so the, I believe that God gave me a um, couple gifts. Uh, one of those gifts is, is my passion uh, for people and and wanting to motivate them, I've, I've just always had that motivational component within me, uh, and I think it you know it comes from 
you know, two wonderful parents who uh, just are inspiring and who care mm. deeply for human beings and and want to help people and inspire people and you know, and I'm blessed to have had that uh, to watch that as a kid and and then the other is my art. Um, from the earliest moments, I could just draw. Mm. Uh, I could just I just looked at life through the lens of of art and had the deep appreciation for uh, what art does and what it represents for us. Because when a person is able to really trigger a creative spark that they're willing to not only allow that come out to come out on them, whether it's in a, a song or a performance or a journal entry or a poem or whatever the hell it is, a picture, they, they are releasing a component of their soul out into the open and and there's much in life that we do to try and protect that exposure to yeah. to uh, put the armor around that exposure in order to be able to you know not be judged we we, we struggle with judgment in life and mm -hmm. but yet all of life is judgment right it's these kind of predetermined hierarchies of of societal uh, development and man for me you know, and, you know, going from the warrior, one of the reasons why I wanted to be a medic is because I was petrified that 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 component of me, that artist, that romantic, mm. uh, you know, that Renaissance uh, influence, would be decimated by the very real um, um, process of indoctrination. Because that's what you have to do. You have yeah. to submit to the indoctrination process to become a, a real warrior. And so I wanted to be a medic, so I didn't lose that. Um, and and luckily, it, it it helped tremendously. But you know, for a greater part of about a decade or more, I as I got out, I I tried to live in that warrior space. Tried to keep the rock on. Mm. And and although I and I, I have some real blessed friends out there who would you know, support, you know, my abilities as, as an operator, man, I'm, I'm an artist. That's who I am. And I had to come to grips with that. Wow. And, and, and it as not a, a detriment to my, my, my self-reflect, my ability to self-reflect, to say, all right, you know, I, 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 I'm good. I'm, I, I can carry a gun. I can do all those other things, but man, I, I want to create oh. to spark people to think. And and that's where the shift really happened. And it really came to fruition after going through my divorce. That was uh, a real eye-opener for me in, in life. Of course, it would have to be. But I admire so much, you know, anytime you see somebody produce art, whether it's music or whatever it happens to be, you're seeing courage in action because to put it out there is an act of massive courage in the first place. So, uh, well, think about it. Think about what human beings do, right? And think about what, how, 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 I mean, look at what happens on Twitter or look what happens on social media. People, I mean, hell, the, uh, uh, there was a, a young girl whose father was uh, essentially assassinated. Uh, he's a police officer down in, in, in uh, Texas. And, uh, you know, she put online this beautiful, sentimental, heartfelt uh, a memory of her father and what he meant as a hero. And she was attacked online mm -hmm. and with some rich, horrific things were said to her. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we live in a world where, especially through the, uh, the 
perceived anonymity of, of the internet, yeah. um, you know, that we can just throw daggers at people. And so when you yeah. put yourself out there in a genuine way, cause there's a lot of people put themselves out there in a, in a manufactured way. Yeah. But when you put yourself out there in a genuine way where you really come from the heart and that's a, that's a scary, scary, fearful thing. It truly is. And I always say that if you're, if you're true to your authentic voice, your tribe will find you. You're never going to be for everybody. There's always going to be haters. But the people who stick with you because you're authentic, you can affect real change with them. And that's so important. And, you know, I think for you, the people that listen to your podcast, that read your books, they're there because they're those true fans, not because having fans is important, but because your message resonates, your authenticity resonates with them. I think it's a big lesson that people can learn from you personally. Well, what the hardest thing to do, I mean, think from the, the think about the earliest, Chris, the earliest pieces of influence that you had mm -hmm. as a young man. Right. And where those came from and what. And for me, you know, the real powerful one started when I was 12, 13 years old. And, you know, it was it was great generals from World War Two, but it was also Jimi Hendrix and, mm -hmm. and, 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 and these <laughs> artists over here. And so I yeah. had this sensation of duality about uh, about. But when you start to dig in and you really look at people that have influenced you in, in their lives, man, there's, there's, there's a lot of stories that are very positive, but there's also a lot of stories that are very tragic as well, too. Um, and as you begin to develop, you know, what we do is we mimic. I mean, we're essentially, that's what human beings like to do. And we, we mimic stylistically, we mimic, uh, um, uh, creatively, we mimic, uh, business models, we mimic, uh, our peers. We, you know, and that's what we do. And we find, like you said, we find those tribes that kind of, we can assimilate into that make us feel the most comfortable. Mm -hmm. And what, you know, my father and, and mother really showed me, my dad, dad in particular is that, man, this world is a massive place and, and there's so many incredible way things to be influenced by don't don't fall prey to the commonplace of groupthink. that's right don't fall prey to you know the the natural uh um uh, assimilation into the you know where you are culturally whether mm -hmm. you go to a school you pick a group of friends and then you just stay in this one kind of trajectory your whole life man because the the real the real exploration of who you are you know, exists in, in around the world. It exists in, in all the different books that you could possibly read. And mm. it, it exists in, in your, what you watch and what you listen to. It exists in who you meet and all these different things. So if you really want to begin to explore the totality of, of life itself, man, you have to have, be willing to put yourself out there. Yeah. Whether it's through, conversation, which is the most critical aspect of putting yourself. It's the most creative, the most naturally creative thing that we have is our ability to converse with somebody mm. on a meaningful level. Yeah. Yes. And if, and the more you do that, the more you grow. Wow. I love it. You're bringing stuff that I've never had on the show before. And I thank you for that. Let's cleanse thank the you. palate with an interesting question. If I hit resume on your music player right now, what's going to start playing? 
<laughs> that's so that's so awesome. Um so right now I, I just uh I there's a you, you familiar with who Moby is? Yes, yeah. Yeah, the electronic dance mm-hmm. guy. Yep. Um uh I have uh he developed a, a big thing with uh artists and especially instrumental artists right now is they're developing these calming sleep uh yeah. albums. And so he has one called Long Ambience One. Yep which is calm sleep. And I, I use those to, uh, uh, reset my, my neuro patterning as I go to sleep at night. So that's what's in there right now. Uh, and then, uh, what I typically like to do is, is put on my songs list and then push shuffle Mm -hmm. and to see what comes up. And, and it could range from, you know, Miles Davis to, uh, to Mozart to um, Ice Cube, to uh, you know, you you to Nirvana, you name it. I, I just I have a passion for um, every type of artistic influence uh, from musically that I can get, so I can really process. And uh, just to give you another, for instance, like uh, all weekend. Uh, my very uh, good friend of mine, Charlie Daniels, uh, died last week. I'm and, aware, I know, and I'm sorry because I know that that impacted you. Yeah, it was it was a, a substantial thing, but in a very positive way, mm-hmm. in a very positive way, because uh, after the last six years of working with um, um, to help them raise money for their veterans charity, mm-hmm. which is called the Journey Home Project, I got to know Charlie, and but more importantly, I got to know his manager, David Corlew, and he's become one of my my greatest mentors I've ever had in my life. And so to go up and, and be a part of that and to watch that, it really what the, the, the impactful thing for me was that the way people spoke of Charlie, you know, and this is a guy that, you know, he, and people don't know this, you know, he played on three uh, Bob Dylan albums. He mm-hmm. played on Ringo Starr. He toured with Leonard Cohen for yep. a year. He toured with, toured with the Grateful Dead. He toured with, uh, Rod Stewart, the Rolling Stones. I mean, you know, he's he's been one of the biggest musicians. He was in the Music Hall of Fame, the Country Music Hall of Fame, the Grand Old Opry Hall of Fame. <laughs> he's I mean, an achiever. He was an incredible, yeah. but more so, it was who he was as a human being. He cared deeply for people. Wow. And he and in in that was his humility. And he was the same guy at 83 when he passed as he was when he was 23 or 33 or 43. And what you take away from that is he never altered who he was. Right. And it wasn't about, there's this, there's this great story. I, I think I can tell now that he's, that he's passed. Uh, that David told me a few years back, he was, he was going to get, you know, a, an insane amount of money uh, from Dodge. They were going to use his mm-hmm. devil went down to Georgia. They wanted to use it for a, a Hellcat commercial for their, what is it? Charger challenge or whatever it is. And, uh, in it, they were going to make the car be smoking like it was a demon or something. And, you know, and they spent, you know, a lot of money developing. Well, they showed it to Charlie and, and, you know, he smiled and he says, you know, that's, that's really nice gentlemen and, and ladies, you know, they're really beautifully done, but uh, I'm sorry, I, I can't have my song affiliated with something that conjures up the devil or mm-hmm. evil or something like that. He's just like, I'm sorry. Thank you very much, but uh, no, thank you. Mm-hmm. And David, you know, it's like, Charlie, what are you doing? This is a major national ad campaign. It was, you know, what are you doing? And he goes, he goes, David, you know, <laughs> he goes, I've done a lot of horrible things that I'm not proud of in my life. Uh, I'm certainly, uh, you know, when I go have to answer for all my sins, 
uh, I'm not going to get kicked out of heaven for a Dodge commercial. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and that just shows who the man was, yes, his integrity. Yeah. And, and, and so for me, as I am trying to navigate this crazy world of uh, essentially the entertainment world, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what we are. We're all entertainers mm-hmm. trying to to sell our wares, like 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 carnival pitchmen, right? Yep. Um, you know, he was a guy that did it uh, the right way, and mm-hmm. so to be able to have access, to be able to be able to see that and t- touch it and taste it and learn from them is is like I said, it's. Those are the experience that reshape uh, your perception of the world. You got it. Long before books, long before internet, there were people doing inspiring things around every corner. And one of the secrets to life is to find those stories and allow yourself to be inspired and moved by them. So thanks for sharing that story. That's a real tribute to the man. Thank you. Now, let me ask you, what, what do you got going on? What's next for David Rutherford? Oh man, Jesus! Uh, I I've got my my girls have a swim lesson this morning, and <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I I appreciate it. I I jeez. Uh, um, so professionally, my biggest thing from you know just from a a corporate level, you know, we're, our big thing is we're moving into online training, mm-hmm. and that's really where. We, we've I've wanted to do it for the last three or four years because two of my uh, close friends, uh, Jeff Nichols, uh, who's one of the top uh, strength and conditioning coaches in the country, and then my other friend Mike Ritlin, who uh, uh, owns a, a has a massive podcast and is a, a big time dog trainer. Mm-hmm. Um, he they both have online training business and have done very well. And so you know a few years back they're like, "Rut man, you got to do this," and it's something I've always wanted to do it. But when you're doing you know, 40, 50 events a year. You're doing, I'm, I do three or four veterans charities a year. I do a lot of nonprofit stuff. You know, I, I, you know, and that when I was in the TNQ podcast, I mean, I was spending three months a year over two, three months a year over at Marcus's ranch recording. So mm-hmm. no, just didn't have the time. Uh, but thank God for the quarantine, man, because it, it put me in one place. It kept me at home and it let me do the work. So we've been working our butts off, uh, and we're going to be releasing um, the uh, first uh, Frog Logic Institute program that we're going to call it, and it's going to be the Embrace Fear training module. We're going to release that in September. Whoa! So, so, that's you, the, so your philosophy is going to be a course. It's going to be a program. Yes, man. Okay, yeah. Dave. Here's my visa number. Write this down: four five one five. Did you get that? So, so uh, you, you guys, you got to check this out. Uh, and you mentioned earlier that you got another book coming too. So let's let's hear about that. Yeah. So the the book is going to be the Team Life book. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I really uh, I started writing it in 2017. Um, and got about a quarter way into it and then kind of slowed down. Um, 2018 for me in terms of performance coaching was, was the biggest year I've had to date. Mm-hmm. And I was able to work with the 2018 collegiate world series champions, the Oregon state Beavers. And then I also was in my third year of working with the Boston Red Sox, yep. who then went on to have the greatest team in Boston Red Sox mm-hmm. history and won the world series championship. And so those experiences really kind of shifted uh, the the narrative a little bit and mm-hmm. gave me a truckload of new information to be able to add in. 
And so I, I, I started doing that and, you know, I'm just, again, timing to be able to sit down and just write. So I'm about 50, 60% done with the team life book and hope to release that, uh, in the fall, late fall sometime. Fantastic. You have a lot other than your daughter's swimming lessons. You actually have a lot going on, man. A lot to well, be excited I run, for. I, I run that podcast. I try and put out a new podcast every week yes, and it's sir. just me and a couple people that help with that. You know, I do YouTube videos. I'm doing online presentations, uh, weekly, a couple of week right now. Thank mm-hmm. God for, for that as a thing now. And, uh, uh, at the same time, raise four daughters, try and be a good fiance. And, uh, the number one thing I have to start really thinking about is, uh, cause our plans were pretty dramatically altered, uh, with, with yeah. COVID, yeah. um, is, you know, when I'm going to marry this incredible woman who's, uh, once who's changed my whole life, my whole way of thinking. So. I was going to ask you, what's the date? So no date yet? No, it was supposed to be about, uh, Three weeks ago, oh, we were no supposed way. to be over. Yeah, we were going to do a, a, a nice little service over in Europe and, and just with immediate family. And, mm-hmm. and we pulled the trigger back in January once we start the spread and it started to happen. So we got to figure out here what what when it's going to happen and how and how we're going to do it. So. Move the day. Well, man, you know what? I'm going to be celebrating with you in spirit when it happens because that's going to be a big day. And, you know, my, my travel will have caught this, but I love how you took the, you know, thank Thank God for COVID-19. Otherwise, I wouldn't have had time to sit down. I love how you flip everything into the positive or into the, you know, what's the takeaway? What's the learning? What's the unexpected benefit? And it's not about faking positivity. It's about finding it. 100%. I mean, there's, you know, the, I, I swear to God, I always joke that if I ever found the person who said, fake it until you make it, I'd, I'd choke them out, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. But, the, you know, there is a, component in, 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 you know, the self-confidence book that says, you know, false motivation is better than no motivation at Mm -hmm. all. And that's different, right? That's different than faking something that's different than lying about a particular mindset. What it is, is you're, you're, you're learning how to dig deep in those hardships, in those moments where you're getting pummeled by the negative insurgency is just beating the snot out of you. Mm -hmm. If you don't find find something to grab onto, whether it's a concept, whether it's an experience, whether it's a person that can pull you out of that abyss, man, then you are going to, you know, just linger in that, that brutality, that mind, that negative mindset, because the negative insurgency is literally hunting us day in mm-hmm. and day out. It's real and it's every day and it's relentless. Relentless. That is the greatest word to describe negativity. Yes, sir. David, I got to thank you. I mean, I want everyone to get from you what I got from you. So they can find you at teamfroglogic.com. And on Twitter, what's the Twitter handle? Uh, It's at teamfroglogic. I've kind of gone off Twitter. Okay. Um, It's just... um, the negativity is just so pronounced. And I know it's not the right thing to do. It's just... I needed a break from it, so I yep. I, I I stopped posting there. But I, I am on Instagram and Facebook at Team Frog Logic. Perfect. I'll put those in the show notes for everyone to check out. David, I'm grateful for you for for not only this show today. And I told my tribe last night in our Facebook private group, this is going to be the best interview I've ever done. Mm. And I was not wrong. You delivered in spades, God my friend. You. Thank you for that. Thank you. Chris. I, I wish you the best. And as soon as that course comes out, like I said, you're going to recognize my name. I'm going to be there. Um, because I want to support you in any way I can. If you need help being agile, I know a guy. 
You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, I do. And, I do. Thank you. And so I would I would love to have another conversation with you down the road when the time is right to hear about how you're progressing and to just help you and serve you in any way I can, David. And I thank you for spending the time with me today. Thank you so much. God bless you and your family, Chris. And to you, David. Wow, what a great conversation. David, thank you for bringing your passion, your fire, your ideas. I know this will go down as one of my favorite episodes of all time. I hope it's one of yours as well. Now listen, you got to check him out. Grab some of his books over at teamfroglogic.com. You can also find him on Instagram and Facebook at Team Frog Logic. And make sure you subscribe to his show, the Team Frog Logic Podcast. Special thanks to Jana for helping make this whole thing happen. And as for me, you can reach out at badassagile.com or find me on Twitter at badass underscore agile. And don't forget to join the Facebook group and look for us on YouTube. Guys, thanks for tuning in all the way to the end. I'm looking forward to seeing you next time. And until then, stay badass. Badass.